Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine podcast. With you is Dr. Dania Koja. I'm an emergency physician who practices in Baltimore, Maryland, and all over the world. And I'm Wendy Chang, an emergency physician and neurointensivist in Baltimore, Maryland. And today we're going to be talking about critical decisions in emergency medicine publication, specifically the June 2021 issue. And if you don't know what critical decisions is, what are you waiting for? Critical decisions is a subsufficial CME publication. Each month, there are two lessons in which we discuss the critical decisions you need to think of when you're approaching these topics. There are also a lot of other features, such as the critical image, critical EKG, and as our listeners know, my favorite, the LLSA review. So let's start with our first lesson of the day, powering the heart, left ventricular assist device. Thank you to Dr. Nicholas Pokerjock for writing this article. So Wendy, there's a lot of adults that are getting LVADs, and these numbers are increasing, which is fantastic because their survival's improved. But now, they're more compact, and even kids can get them. So everyone can have an LVAD. You cannot run away. So what are the basics? What are LVADs? That is true. We're definitely seeing them a lot more in the emergency department. And LVADs, as the name suggests, are ventricular assist devices, in this case, left ventricular assist devices. And it's used in severe heart failure, whether as a bridge to transplant, supporting cardiac recovery, or even in patients who are ineligible for transplant. 90% of these are continuous flow devices, which is important when we talk about how to assess these patients. And there are four main components. There's the battery, the controller that regulates the pump function and displays alarms, the drive line that connects the controller to the pump inside the body, and the pump itself. And there's a great figure that outlines all this. All right. Well, that sounds simple enough. So what is it that's so special about these patients that we have to pay extra attention to? What about this little device that we need to understand in the ED? Because I'm pretty sure not going to try to figure out the entire controller driveline, right? That's right. So when you have a patient with an LVAD, there are a couple parameters that you have to pay attention to because it can really help you narrow the differential and you know what's going on in their LVAD-related malfunction. And the three parameters are the power, the flow, and the pulsatility index. The power is just the electrical current that the device is drawing. The flow is the blood flow through the device, and this is affected by preload and afterload. And the pulsatility index is the proportion that is contributed by the native heart. So if you think about it, if the pulsatility index is low, there's actually less function from the native heart. And these devices actually also record what are called suction events, which is when the ventricular wall is being pulled into the inflow cannula, and this commonly causes arrhythmias. Got it. So how common are device malfunctions? Because if we're judging by how electronics like to function around me, this is really bad news. These LVADs are going to completely malfunction all the time. What do I need to know about it? Right. Malfunctions are somewhat common, occurs in 10 to 15% of patients. And the most common malfunction or complication we see related to LVADs is infection. This occurs in a third of patients with the highest risk in the first three months after they had this implanted. As you can imagine, these patients need to be on anticoagulation to prevent thrombosis. And being on a continuous flow LVAD, it can actually cause angiodysplasia in the GI tract. 
So GI bleeds are also quite common, occurring in a quarter of patients. Epistaxis is also a common source of bleeding. And then both ischemic and hemorrhagic strokes can occur in one-fifth of patients or 20%. These are the most common cause of death. Oh my, that sounds awful. So let's say now that patient came through the door and they're not like in cardiac arrest or completely and utterly crashing. They're there for, I don't know, even ankle pain or something. Like what are the fundamentals that are different about assessing these patients that are not necessarily related to their LVAD not working? The most important thing I think that is different on our physical assessment of these patients is the fact that they have a continuous flow and not a pulsatile flow like we do from a normal beating heart. And so their pulses and blood pressures are not reliable in the traditional sense. You have to use other markers of perfusion like cap refill, mental status, and you have to actually monitor their MAP with a manual cuff and a Doppler rather than classically we obviously pay attention to systolic and diastolic functions. When you auscultate, you can listen for this continuous hum and then paying attention to the parameters we mentioned. On the controller itself, or maybe the patient coming in, their main complaint is an alarm on their LVAD, and there are two different types of alarms. Red, as you can imagine, are hazard or scarier alarms, which might signal imminent failure of the device, or yellow alarms that are more advisory. Got it. So what are some of the scenarios of issues specifically related to the LVAD that we may encounter? I already mentioned some complications that can occur with LVADs. In addition to that, pump thrombosis can also occur, and these can present with a variety of symptoms. The turbulent flow can lead to hemolysis, and so these patients may have signs of anemia, or they could have a nearly occlusive thrombus that causes you know, hypotension from obviously a reduced cardiac output. If your patient is presenting with stroke symptoms, you should also evaluate them for pump thrombosis because, as you can imagine, thrombosis can occur in multiple places at the same time. Well, how about if a scary scenario ever comes in? An unresponsive patient with an LVAD. I mean, they don't have a palpable pulse most of the time because of that continuous flow. What am I supposed to do? How do I figure out if that's the problem is that they're, you know, dead? <laughs> That's right. There's a great algorithm in the article by the American Heart Association. Essentially, it's kind of a modification of how we would approach ACLS in these patients. And it really comes down to, again, the fundamentals, which is assessing whether the patient has good perfusion and then if the LVAD is functioning. And so if you have a patient who is coming in with poor perfusion and non-functioning LVAD, such as no audible hum, you have to treat this patient as someone with circulatory arrest and really try to first see if you can restart the LVAD, if that is a problem by such as plugging it into in a power outlet or replacing the controller. If you can't restart the LVAD for whatever reason, then you have to do standard ACLS with CPR and defibrillation. A second scenario would be if you have a patient coming in with poor perfusion, but a functioning LVAD, so essentially they're presenting in shock. In this case, you may have to assist with their ventilation, measure their MAP or entitled CO2, even consider chest compressions if their MAP is less than 50 or if their entitled CO2 is less than 20. And then the third scenario, if you have a well-perfused patient with a functioning LVAD, then you're really talking about other causes of unresponsiveness, such as hypoglycemia, stroke, etc. Got it. Well, this was a fantastic review for LVADs. Thank you so much, Wendy, and thank you again to the author for writing the article. So this was a fantastic reminder that LVAD can either be used as transition therapy or as a destination treatment, like patients are just going to be on LVAD for an unknown amount of time. 
And 90% of them are going to have continuous flow, which means that the patient's not going to have a real pulse. When they come into the emergency department, we need to look at the power, the flow, and the pulse tilty index on the machine itself. And obviously, if it's alarming, we need to make note of that. If we want to get a blood pressure, well, what we really have to do is we're going to use a Doppler to get their map because that's pretty much what we can get. And those patients are going to come in or can come in with a multitude of complaints that are related to their LVAD. So things like infections, bleeds, pump thrombosis, and other thrombotic events can be things like strokes or multi-system thrombosis. The trickier part, which is your unresponsive patient with an LVAD, when they first come in, you got to make sure that their perfusion is there. If they have no perfusion and no audible hum, then that's probably cardiac arrest or circulatory arrest. And that's where you would need to restart the LVAD and do CPR. If the LVAD is functioning, but they have a poor perfusion, then, you know, they're in shock. Treat them just like any other patient who has shock. And if their perfusion is fine, then you just need to treat them just like any other person with an unresponsive presentation. So remember all this because an LVAD is coming to an ER near you. I would definitely keep this article handy as a reference. For our critical EKG this month, it is not a patient with an LVAD, but it is a great reminder that even if there is ST elevation in leads B1 and B2 with a benign morphology, you should still look carefully for ST depression and other leads irrelevant of how old the patient is. Great reminder and a fantastic EKG. And keeping up with the cardiology theme, up to your favorite part, the LLSA review. Ruling out acute MI and acute coronary syndrome with a high-sensitivity troponin assay and accelerated diagnostic pathways. And this LSA review is of the article by Greenslade et al. that was published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2018. And this is definitely helpful because chest pain is one of the most common presentations we see. And sometimes it feels like every single person in the emergency department has chest pain. And over the years, you start to pick up and realize that there's a huge variation how people approach these chest pain rollouts in the ED. Some sound evidence-based and some sound like they're not. So what does the evidence tell us? I agree with what you said. But this particular article described five accelerated diagnostic pathways using high-sensitivity troponin and looking at their accuracy. There's the heart score, there's the modified ADAPT, there's the EDAX, and there's the new Vancouver chest pain rule and a no-objective testing rule. There's definitely a mouthful of abbreviations. Well, heart is easy to remember, and Vancouver is easy because it's a pretty place. But that's all you're going to get out of me. So other than remembering all of these acronyms, what do we need to remember about these rules? What are we looking at? Well, all of these rules really consider combinations of risk factors with EKG and troponin to try and figure out who is low risk and who can be discharged from the ED. And they found that the Vancouver chest pain rule and the no objective testing rule has high sensitivity and may actually rule out 30-day ACS in 25 to 30% of patients, whereas the modified ADAPT, EDAX, and heart diagnostic pathways allow classification of more than 50% of patients as low risk needing referral for cardiac testing. I think the bottom line, though, is that this really needs to be tailored to you as a clinician and your risk tolerance, and certainly your access to cardiology follow-up, as well as the institution you practice at. Got it. So consistency, 
is key. All right. Well, that was a great review of a lot of rules. I'm pretty sure we're going to need to go back to the LSA review and maybe the article itself to learn more about these rules and understand which one we like. But one, it's definitely important to be consistent. And as an institution, it's helpful for the institution to have some sort of overarching guides so that people can get consistent care there. And two, I think we just managed to have an LSA review where you did not get to talk about neurology, Wendy. So (laughs) I snuck it into the first lesson. Didn't you hear? You did. You did. I saw that. (laughs) I saw that with all the strokes you kept talking about, but I let it go. So (laughs) moving on to critical image. And this particular image reminds me of one of my most stressful cases from like years ago. I was at a small community hospital and we hear that the medics are outside because they were like right outside. And they bring in this morbidly obese patient with asthma. And as she's coming through the doors, she has this respiratory arrest. So of course, like you're freaking out. Nobody's prepped. It's a difficult airway, but thankfully the intubation goes well. First attempt, you know, we step away from the patient, the tube is in, we get the post-tube chest x-ray, and then she's desatting. We look at the x-ray and her lung is completely whited out. And I'm like, man, I thought I did a good job. Yeah, that would definitely be quite scary. And I guess in this case, a mucus plug, huh? Yes, exactly. So at least it wasn't my poor intubation skills for that one. The patient just had a mucus plug. And this particular case, this critical image, is a fantastic review of what the x-ray findings are when you have somebody with a lung collapse coming in either from a mucus plug or in this particular case, like a cancer plug. So this particular patient had like an endobronchial mass from non-small cell lung cancer, and that plugged the airway and caused the lung collapse. There's an x-ray and a CAT scan for you to really correlate what a collapsed lung looks like. Definitely awesome. So moving on to a similar topic, but on a smaller scale. Our clinical pediatrics this month is about foreign body ingestion. Because you know what? Foreign bodies can get stuck in your bronchi and also cause lung collapse. So this is a fantastic review of foreign body ingestions in children. And they talk about coins, button batteries, magnets, and sharp objects. However, in this particular case that they use as an example in the beginning of the article, the patient presents with abdominal pain and vomiting. It's definitely a good case to remind ourselves that we have to maintain a high index of suspicion for a foreign body ingestion, even when there's no clear history. Definitely. And a few of the many, many tips in this article is that if you have an object and its width is more than five centimeters, then it's unlikely to pass from the pylorus. Don't waste time and try to wait for it to pass through the stomach. If you have a button battery and it's in the esophagus, that's an immediate endoscopy. If it's in the stomach, you kind of have like 24 hours. And if it's past the pylorus and the patient's asymptomatic, then you can give it some time to go on its own. Magnets, don't play around with those because you never know how many magnets there are. So just call GI or surgery depending on where it is. That's right. And continuing with our pediatric discussion, our critical cases in orthopedics and trauma this month is a case of a pediatric femur fracture secondary to an accidental gunshot wound. And this particular mechanism is thankfully not very common but it's a good review of femur fractures in pediatrics, remembering that signs may be quite subtle, especially because maybe the child doesn't let you do a very thorough exam. And you'd want to get history from bystanders and caregivers for the mechanism, the possibility of other injuries, as well as suspicions for a non-accidental trauma. All right, got it. So with kids, do all of them have to go to the OR like adults for their femur fractures? 
While definitive management in school-age children is controversial, but infants less than two years old may be managed with clothes reduction and casting unless there's extreme angulation, rotation, or comminution. So moving on to a larger problem, or actually it's still a pretty small problem because it's just a nose, we're talking about lesson two, nasopharyngoscopy, the nasal passages. Thank you to doctors Eric Vaught and Daphne Morrison-Ponsey for writing this article. Interesting article. What are we going to talk about? The nose? That is exactly it. The authors are basically advocating for the use of a flexible fiber optic scope to evaluate the upper airway. And I got to say, Wendy, we have a lot of great articles, but this is one of my favorites because it's very much to the point when and how to use the nasopharyngoscopy. Very practical. So why would we use a fiber optic scope? So we would use that to directly visualize the larynx and posterior pharynx. So if a patient's presenting with angioedema, strider, or a foreign body sensation, then we can actually just look there and see what is happening. Because as I'm sure that you and our listeners know, plain x-rays of the upper airway are not enough because they miss a lot of important diagnoses. So what particular diagnoses would we be looking for? So soft tissue obstructions such as epiglottitis or abscesses, and radiolucent material that's stuck in people's throats like fish bones. It also gives you a chance to diagnose less common causes of upper airway complaints like arytenoid dislocations, vocal cord hematomas, vocal cord dysfunctions, and structural anomalies. And another situation that I don't know if you've ever been in that, but when you don't have all the resources available to you when you have a patient with angioedema and you're trying to figure out how can you manage their airway and who do you need to call because not everybody is in your shop, then visualizing the nasopharynx can be really helpful to risk stratify their airway management plan and figure out what can you do for them right now. And also for some of these patients who are coming in with scary complaints like Strider, for example, then it would allow you to provide them a safe disposition if you took a look there and realized that there is nothing acute. Very cool. I think this is, would be a really useful tool to use in the ED. Definitely. And that's why this article takes the time to describe the procedure. And there's also a QR code for a video resource for nasopharyngoscopy in the article. Like, how much more practical can you get? This is awesome. I can do it for all my patients, right? Well, almost all the patients. There are a few contraindications. In patients who you really think have acute epiglottitis, whether adults or children, then we need to have that double setup because if you trigger that acute laryngospasm and their airway completely closes, then you really need to be able to get them to breathe and do that crack that they need. Patients on blood thinners are probably going to bleed, so you got to be really careful with that and avoid it if possible. And patients with craniofacial trauma as well, because you don't want to end up scoping their brain instead of their airway. That's usually frowned upon. Well, thank you, Dania, for taking us through this very practical article and the authors for providing such great resources, such as the QR code to more information. I think we should utilize nasopharyngoscopy more often in an ED, like you mentioned, for patients presenting with angioedema, strider, foreign body sensations, since x-rays are just simply not sufficient for their full evaluation. But it isn't for every patient, as you mentioned also, such as for acute epiglottitis, patients on blood thinners, and those with craniofacial trauma. Exactly. And don't forget, you can always take a look at the video resource in the article. So moving on to another procedure for a critical procedure this month, there is Beer's Block. And we are not talking about the mental block that you get when you have a lot of beer, but actually a very helpful 
block that you can use in the emergency department. I remember learning about these and always wanted to try this, but haven't had the opportunity yet. But as the article mentions, there's many benefits, such as certainly the anesthesia provides to the extremity, but also muscle relaxation and a bloodless field. There's also risk associated with this, such as toxicity from the anesthetic, the diluent, complications for IV access, and even compartment syndrome has been reported related to inappropriately concentrated diluent. Using 1.5 milligrams per kilogram instead of 3 milligrams per kilogram of lidocaine can possibly reduce some of these side effects. And if you are curious on how to do this in the emergency department, definitely check out the article. The entire idea is that you tourniquet the extremity and then you're able to inject the anesthetic, which would give you that bloodless field. And once your procedure is done, you can briefly release the tourniquet and repeat to slowly release the anesthetic back into the body and reduce side effects. And don't forget that patients may need more than just that local numbing, and they may need anxiolysis or analgesia. And you can't really put it on for more than an hour and a half. Also, if it's taking you longer than an hour and a half, then why are you doing this by yourself in the emergency department? So Wendy, I know that you always do the drug box and I always do the detox box, but can I please, 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 please talk about the drug box this month? I really want to. Yes, because you should be on a box telling about this drug box. (laughs) So on my drug box box, today's drug box is Draperidol, which is a butyrophenone with antagonistic activity at dopaminergic, histamine, serotonin, and a little bit of alpha receptors. So it basically works for everything. Most importantly, it works for agitation, nausea and vomiting, and headache. And the doses can vary. So you can have anywhere from 0.625 milligrams for your nausea and vomiting up to 10 milligrams IM or IV for your agitation. And it's amazing for agitation because the onset is three to 10 minutes and you're done. It's around for 30 minutes and then you're good to go. Now, the problem with Draperidol is that it's been vilified for QT prolongation despite the fact that studies are really lacking in that area. And this particular drug box actually mentions a study of 6,353. So in case you're wondering, that's a really large number of people who had zero arrhythmias within 24 hours. And there's a ton of studies out there that talk about how Draperidol is safe. As long as the patient doesn't have like prolonged QT at baseline and doesn't have a reason to have that, then you are good if you stick to the correct dosage. So hopefully Draperidol will be at an ER near you back to play the game. Not Alvads, just Draperidol by itself. (laughs) I'm glad it's made a comeback. Whereas for our tox box this month, it's on bromethylene poisoning, which is another rodanticide with neurotoxic effects, but minimal to no anticoagulant effects. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So now I understand why you let me have the drug box because you wanted to talk about the neurotox box thing. Now I understand. You weren't just trying to be nice. (laughs) I should know better than to trust you like that, Wendy. (laughs) It's just fate. So So this drug uncouples oxidative phosphorylation, which is always a bad thing. Uh, Interestingly, A patient can tolerate up to 0.1 milligrams per kilogram of the drug without symptoms. And the symptoms are usually GI, abdominal pain and vomiting, CNS, whether agitation or seizures, and tachycardia. 
Treatment includes supportive care, benzos for seizures, treatment of cerebral edema, or even intralipid emulsion in extreme cases. If it is an intentional ingestion, you'd want to observe for 24 hours for delayed effects. And all patients who are symptomatic, though, should be admitted. All right. So say no to rat poison. Always. Irrelevant of whether it's bromethylene or coumadin. That's right. So thank you, Wendy, for taking the time to go through this issue with me. I definitely learned a lot and enjoyed my time. Our dear listeners, I hope you've enjoyed listening to us as much as we've enjoyed recording this podcast. We hope that you find the Critical Decisions publication in our podcast always informative, often enlightening, and never boring. We would love to hear from you on Twitter. Please connect with us. My Twitter handle is at Tanya Koja. Mine is at EM underscore NCC. And until next month... Bye-bye.